building an artificial intelligence strategy. There's hardly anything more vague and open-ended than that. I think when the idea dawns on a business person that they ought to have some kind of an AI strategy, it's tough to understand where to start. I think the best place to start is to speak with people who've built AI strategies and applied AI in bigger businesses and figure out from their experience, what the heck should I focus on first? And that's exactly what we do on this episode of AI in Industry. Here at Emerge, that's E-M-E-R-J.com, I presume most of you who listen to the podcast also read our articles or subscribe to our newsletter. If you're not, I certainly recommend you do because you'll get these episodes in your inbox as well as all the various coverage that we do in various sectors. Uh, but at Emerge, we have a variety of PhDs that help us with our editorial content, help us with business initiatives, help us with clarifying research projects. Um, and one of the folks that I've sort of tapped for many years now for AI expertise is Dr. Charles Martin. Dr. Charles Martin heads up Calculation Consulting. He's based in Silicon Valley, uh, and he's been applying AI in bigger businesses like BlackRock and like eBay for well over a decade. Charles is a guy with a lot to say in this particular domain in terms of the challenges and the struggles of applying AI to bigger existing businesses, but also to where people should start. What are the things we need to start ignoring that maybe are hype or just noise? What are the things we really need to tune into if we are leading companies that are trying to actually apply AI? What are the true priorities that we should begin with? And Charles has a big three of those that he focuses on in this particular episode. Again, Charles is one of, I'd say, three AI PhDs who I've tapped probably the most in the last two years for our projects, clarifying research, etc. Respect his opinion a lot, and I thought he brought a lot to the table. If you haven't already, by the way, for those of you who are tuned in, on emerge.com, E-M-E-R-J.com, if you go to browse by topic, there's a category called AI executive guides. If you like this whole theme of AI strategy, of insights particularly for executives, then make sure you check that out. Uh, whether it's separating hype from reality, whether it's picking the right vendor company, whether it's working with AI teams, even if you have no AI experience, the AI executive guides category is the place uh, to sort of glean those kinds of insights. So if this theme works out for you, dive in there uh, because that section in the menu, AI executive guides, uh, is the place to start. Again, that's emerj.com. So without further ado, this is Dr. Charles Martin speaking with us about AI strategy. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI in Industry, and we're about to get started. So Charles, I want to get started with AI strategy as a topic. Uh, you've seen a lot of firms sort of struggle with this and occasionally succeed with this over many more years than, than your average bear in the AI world today. And I know that a big part of this is just having a fundamental operational knowledge of AI off the bat. I think a lot of people imagine that maybe they can just go build a strategy, but if they don't have kind of that grounded knowledge to know what's possible, that's not something they can do. Talk about what that foundational insight is and, and why that's challenging. I think that people hear a lot about AI in the news or in you know layman's media or in you know more executive level type media you're reading about it and it's somewhat ethereal and it's very very different than say you're going to build a web application or yeah. you're going to build an iPhone app you pretty much it's a construction project you know what the thing is supposed to look like you can understand what all the parts are and you understand how the parts are assembled and you have an idea of what it takes to put all this together, how to measure success, how your customers are going to use it, et cetera. AI is, is somewhat different because 
a lot of the technologies are not that familiar. You may not be familiar with what's possible and what isn't possible. And some of this may require some research on your part. So, for example, if you're trying to design an object detection system or some sort of image recognition system, you need to know a lot of details about what format is the data in? What are the quality of the images? How many images do you have? How do your current images perform under the existing open source technologies? Does like something like Amazon recognition work for you, or do you have to build something from scratch? And it's very difficult to make that buyer build decision because it takes a lot more of basic due diligence on the existing technologies to do that, M- much more so than more traditional IT type projects where everyone in the organization has experience with these technologies. They know what they can do and what they can't do. And they can pretty much lay out an architecture without having to do all of that legwork. Yeah. And I guess, you know, thinking out loud here that there's not obviously that many folks that have maybe those baseline capabilities just kind of kicking around, right? You're not picking that up in school for most people. You know, the, the process of getting like the osmosis of those bits of knowledge into the enterprise feels like it almost has to be slow because it's starting with a very small number of people who have that knowledge. What do you think are the best ways for executive groups to, to kind of get up to speed? Is it just, you know, find those people who know it and just spend time around them, do whatever you need for hiring that kind of talent or, you know, educating the boardroom on those basic concepts? You know, what are the best ways to catch up, I guess? Well, I I always recommend the best way to do something is to do it. So if you want to get an AI, you have to start building things. And, you know, you've got to bring some people in, either hire them or bring them in as consultants. And you have to start building solutions to problems you have. And you have to pick a problem which you, you think you can reasonably solve, which has a good ROI, and which, if you don't get right, does not damage you. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about like a a reasonably low risk initial project. I mean, do you recommend this for big companies, for small companies, for everybody starting? Everybody. I mean, a big company is a bunch of little people all working in a company. Yeah. Even in a big company, projects start with two or three, four people, and then they they expand. There's always a core group of people who are working on the technology, especially something very very new. I mean, I mean, unless you know you're you know, you're Bechtel or something, you're trying, you know, you know, you're trying to build some multi-billion dollar thing. And even there, you know, you still need to have some sort of core research team, which is building the fundamental technologies. It is always a core team. And the thing is that AI, even if it works, it makes a lot of mistakes. And so you want to pick something where the mistakes don't cause a lot of pain for you. So like if you look at where this technology came from, machine learning, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when companies started doing machine learning, things like the Amazon Recommender or the ad system on Google, or you know, what we were doing, the search relevance on eBay. Now, if you were using Amazon 10 years ago and Amazon recommended a product to you and that product wasn't very interesting, you just didn't buy it. Yeah, the consequences not, are really low, right? You're not you're not diagnosing cancer here. Right. And so you can make incremental improvements. And those incremental improvements lead to ROI. And if you make a mistake, you can go back and fix it. It doesn't cause damage. Yes, if you pick a project where you're trying to cure, you're trying to diagnose a disease, and if you misdiagnose it, you have a problem. 
you know, you know, or you have a lawsuit, that's probably not the best technology to start with. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I'm just trying to think out loud as to what this might look like in a real business. You know, someone could say, okay, well, I don't run a hospital or an e-commerce store. I'm working insurance or, you know, I'm, I'm at a big bank or a pharma company somewhere. Here, here's well, insurance. Some, you, uh, yeah. Let's lay it out there. One of the problems in insurance is that when someone comes in and applies for insurance or they apply for a loan, you have to find out who they are and you have to do a credit check. And if you do that credit check incorrectly, you could have a lawsuit because you denied them and you weren't supposed to deny them. You have to make sure that that's correct. Now, if you're doing it incorrectly already, you want to have a system that can try to flag people who might be incorrect. You don't want the AI to do it for you because if it makes a mistake, it would cause a lawsuit or a problem. But you could have it flag potential problems, which could then be reviewed by a human. And so that improves your process. Every correct result the AI makes saves you a couple hundred thousand dollars. Every error it makes is not a big deal. Yeah, because you, 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 you got a human looking over it anyway, right? Is what you're saying? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, another good example of this came out, and this is a frustrating example. It came out of Flint, Michigan. So Flint, Michigan, you know, there was this problem with the water, the lead in the water. And they, the city brought in a consulting firm to build an AI and the AI or machine learning algorithm was able to, to predict which houses had lead pipes. And unfortunately, an article came out today and the city didn't use it. They, they didn't use it. They just decided to check. For, you know, Politics got involved and people, they started checking all the pipes everywhere. And of course, you can't afford to do that. So they never got a chance to use it. So here's an example where you know, they built the technology, had it been used properly, would have allowed them to go out and fix the problem without having to spend a hundred times the cost to check every single pipe. You know, and that's a problem with these technologies. You know, you've got to get them working into production. But I think that from the, sorry, I, I diverge, but the, the insurance example is a very good example because you, you want the AI to find problems. When it finds a problem, it can be fixed. And this is the key. You want to make sure that as you put the thing into production, it runs, that you're systematically getting better and better at fixing problems. Yeah. Okay. So, and when you say fixing problems, I presume you're talking about all the contextual stuff you're going to have to learn when you're putting AI into action. So we're talking about how you're feeding in the data and how it's harmonized and, and labeled or what have you, um, how you're, you know, adjusting maybe the creep of the algorithm in this direction or that direction that, that isn't ultimately good for the result. Uh, maybe how the teams are working together. Do you mean kind of all those contextual bits of glue that kind of make it all work that you want to, you want to build those muscles? Right, right. I mean, this takes some work internally to measure what's going on to make sure the thing is working. Look, when you, when you put an algorithm into production, it's not going to work correctly the first time you do it. You know, you may have an algorithm that works very, very well in the laboratory. You know, you do it on, you, you test it. When you put it in production, it doesn't work at all. And you have to be ready to go in and ask, why didn't it work? You know, was it wrong? Was it put into production? Was the algorithm fundamentally wrong? Did you do something wrong in the lab? Did you put it into production wrong? Are you measuring it incorrectly? Did you deploy it to a situation where there weren't any problems anyway, so it wouldn't have found anything? This is a real challenge. A lot of companies, they build something, they build it in the laboratory, it looks correct. You put it into the production in a complex environment, and you have no idea why it's working. You know, if, if you just put it in and it just sort of works, and you get revenue, then you can kind of, you know, you can go to the beach and, you know, have a drink and relax. But if you put it in and it doesn't really work, 
it looks like a failure for the team. And it's very hard to know why it didn't work. It may not be the team's failure at all. There could be something down the pipeline that went wrong. And you don't know what happened. And, and the challenge with a lot of organizations is that they don't have the ability to look down the entire pipeline and see where the leaks are. Yeah. And, and, and well, I guess, you know, practice makes perfect eventually. Uh, and so, like you said, you want to make sure you're getting better and better at this stuff each time you do it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to measure it internally. And so you have to think, I'm going to put this thing in. I want to measure it. If I make an improvement, I want to see that it's working better. It can be very challenging if you don't understand how to do those measurements or the data is very messy or there are confounding factors. There are causal factors which you don't know about. And here's a, here's a question that's kind of coming to mind, and maybe this is the, the last bit here on kind of this operational knowledge before we move into teams. You'd mentioned the best way to do something is do it, you know, get, get involved in AI, find a project, find something that's not going to sink you, but it could have a, a measurable and tangible ROI, something that's within the range of AI. That's going to build these skills of data, of teams, whatever else. A lot of the time, I imagine, Charles, that whoever's in the boardroom or in the C-suite who sort of okays these kinds of projects they may not really be there in the room when we're all learning all these hard lessons about bringing AI into production. And it would seem as though if that person doesn't learn, the person who pulls the trigger, the person that calls the shots, let's say, maybe discerns the direction of the firm in the most direct sense by being the leader, uh, if they're not in the room getting that osmosis, maybe they're not building this operational knowledge you're talking about. How do the higher-ups, who often are the ones releasing the funds, get upgraded mentally here, knowledge-wise, as they commission these projects? Because I, I imagine sometimes they're somewhat hands-off, but there's learning that needs to be done. How do they bridge the gap? You know, is it educational event stuff? Is it reading the right things? Is it staying involved in the project at a certain minimal level? What have you seen work for maybe execs actually, to be less dumb with AI? Actually, I have a really good example of this. I worked many years ago with Rich Rosenblatt, who was the former chairman of, the My, of MySpace. And he wrote a blog post on this once. And he said, when you're managing a large organization, you have to go and talk to people who are two or three levels below your reports. Whoa, because yeah. what happens is your, your reports come to you and they tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. So you got to go, and, right? You got to go talk to the guy reporting to the report and reporting to the reporter of the report. So you have some idea of what's going on. That organization, that kind of, rapport. You have to have that kind of rapport with your employees that they're willing to talk with you faithfully and you know openly without fear of reprisal, without fear of pushback. And and that's very, very hard in many organizations. And that's the challenge. Yeah, you know, because you just don't you're not going to know. No one's going to tell you. They're going to hide it from you because they don't want to they don't want you to know that you know that things didn't work. So and, and their boss is going to punish you if you tell them. So it, it's a challenge. You know, it, it, this is a very difficult space because you're talking about doing, you know, complex mathematical analysis on internal things going on in the company. And you have to trust that the people doing the analysis know what they're doing and that they're doing it faithfully and, and that they're doing it, you know, the, the, and, and sometimes the analysis is somewhat arbitrary. You could have multiple systems, what's called attribution. You put an algorithm into a system and you want to know, can you attribute your revenue growth to the algorithm? How much and how much can you attribute to it? And that attribution, that attribution, you might have two or three ways of doing attribution and each way gives you a different result. So large organizations have this problem that they, large complex organizations don't even know where the revenue is coming from. Wild. And, and I guess, well, the same thing could happen in terms of 
how the AI works or what the AI is doing. So it sounds like maybe there is some good reading to be done. Maybe maybe some good networking and consultants you know, can pan out. But it sounds like the boots on the ground learning, even for the higher up people, is go lower and actually watch the stuff go down. If AI is important for your company, you're going to sort of have to be there you know, getting a little bit gritty a couple times a week to really learn this stuff if, if you want to consistently be a leader that marshals AI. It sounds like maybe there's no hey, way hey. around getting involved. That and you have to hire people at a senior level who understand the math. I mean, th- this is one that is so hard, especially in IT organizations, because IT leaders are not—they've never had to really do this. I mean, yeah, you have SQL reports and reporting tools, but you've never had to really go in and ask hard questions about what's happening and to do detailed analysis. And if you don't really know how to do that, and you don't have field commanders who know how to do that. You're not going to ask the right kind of questions and you're not going to be evaluate the things that are giving you. And what's happening is that you look at a company like Amazon or Netflix, where 50% or more of the revenue is coming from the AI. Yep. How, how do you know what's going on? I mean, you just can't, what you did in business school in your class on analytics isn't going to cut it. So you've got to bring leaders in who know how to do this and you have to work with them. And that's a real, it's a real challenge in organizations because you know that you can't bring in a junior person you can't just bring some phd in physics who has one year of experience in industry bring them in and expect them to do your job for you i mean they they're, they don't know what's going on yep. you tough, know they've never, you know, they, they don't yeah. know how to do that it's it's a tough nut to crack you know because you you need that raw mental wizard skills of the physics phd or like you know i don't know bioengineering or whatever so, somebody who's or, or you have to hire someone who's like that, and you have to get them to work with you, so they'll show you what they're doing. But they also have to have some belief that you know you're not just going to give them the boot when you're you know they have to have a reason to want to show you. Yep, yep. Unless they're going to you know move up in the organization or have some you know the you know they they're going to try, but you know it's very hard. And so you know you have to develop those skills, and it's it's no different than. When you when you ask you know, you bring someone in in the organization and you want that knowledge transfer, you know to get that knowledge transfer it takes a lot of work. It's harder because you don't have this buy or build decision. In other organizations, you can just buy stuff. You can buy it or you can outsource it. AI is still at the stage where most of the decisions are built it yourself. Yep. And so yeah, and and I guess it's I feel Charles and maybe you can comment on this yourself. That there's a real slow grind in getting that hard maths, hard science world to mesh with the subject matter expertise of how we make money and how our operations work around here because you need a ton of both to sort of have a really nice fluid AI convo and it doesn't feel like there's any easy answers there. Well, it, it's very hard because the world has become so siloed. Yeah. You have people who get PhDs in physics, you have people who get MBAs, you have people who get, you know, IT degrees. It's become so siloed, then all of a sudden you find out that look, you need to have multiple skills. You need to have the business skills and you need to have those IT skills and you need to have these AI skills. And it turns out that the university systems, the education, everything has been optimized to the existing technology we have. IT people do their thing, the MBA guys do their thing, and they work in the organization, and all of a sudden, you know, AI is coming in and mixing it all up, and you're you're sort of 
having to put teams together with people who are not accustomed to working with each other, have different educations, and you know, a lot of times have chips on their shoulders and don't really want to work with these other people. Yeah, I, that that's got to go away because I think the competitive forces are going to make people you know uh, work better as teams. And that's the next topic, really. Here, Charles is kind of the breaking down of silos. You had kind of teed this up before we got on the mic here in terms of companies working in their neat little departments and divisions that have been defined by the previous technologies. And now if we want to bring AI in, not only maybe are, are those divisions and departments have to be a little bit more fluid, but we have to have more interaction across them. And I think a lot of people building an AI strategy might not realize that that's an inherent part of it. Why do you think that? Uh, maybe let's, let's put some color and some real examples around why that's the case from your experience. Well, the big reason, one, is the data. Because in most organizations, the data is collected at one point, stuffed into a database, and handed off to a reporting team. And you never really had to go and look deeply at what was happening. You know, there's a, there's a data pipeline in the company. And all of a sudden, you're asking someone to come in and develop an algorithm, which can look at very, very fine level of detail in the data and make some prediction. And you've never done anything like that. So the way in which the data is collected, the way in which it's stored, the people who understand what was done have never really had to work in an area where they're generating direct OI, ROI from the data itself. You know, you're, you're an Oracle specialist or, you know, you're a specialist at doing surveys or something like this and you're collecting data, but you never really had to get into it. And so what happens is, it's that old story, you know, you have the people who are on the phone and somebody says something on the phone and they call somebody else, they call somebody else, you know, and five, you know, once you get to the 10th person in the chain, the, the message is completely different. The problem is that what happens where the data is ingested could be three or four groups away from who's going to make the prediction. And that could be three or four groups away from the person who's going to evaluate it. You know, when you're an engineer, there's a fundamental rule of engineering. I learned this working with guys in Boca Raton. I spent some time in Boca Raton working with the guys who invented the, um, the IBM laptop, you know, the IBM computer. And said, so, look, you know, the fundamental principle that engineers have to close the loop. If you're the one who developed the technology, you have to be able to go in, see how the data is collected, see how it's used in the production environment, and close the loop on how you're evaluating what's happening. And most organizations at this time, because of the 20 years of development in IT, have compartmentalized everyone. You don't need to do it anymore because it can be done at a senior level. And that compartmentalization of the technology, here's, here's a basic example. I have a client, work with clients. We want to put a model into production. Okay, so we put the model into production. You know, if the model works, everybody's happy. The model doesn't work. You go back and say, okay, well, where is the model? Well, it's here in production. Where's the code you use to produce the model? Oh, well, I, I, that's on my laptop. Well, did you check it in the GitHub? Well, did you check it in the source control? So, well, not really. I, I kind of did it like I had to experiment with it. So I did it like 20, I have 25 versions of it. And I don't know which one is actually working. Okay, you find the one that's working. What data did you use? Oh, I used data from six months ago. That data is no longer available. That data is stale. So if a problem happens, you can't even go back and do basic diagnostics. Now, in the software world, that, that's unthinkable. In the software world, you write software, it gets checked in the source control, there's unit testing, there's automated testing, there's regression testing, there are automated builds. You know, there's all this automated infrastructure exists to solve these process problems. And that infrastructure doesn't exist yet 
in machine learning and AI world. And so you, you have sort of people just in their daily work, just drop the ball because they don't have the kind of infrastructure support that they need to work in a complex organization when there are 10 or 15 touch points on a project. And I guess to, to sort of feel into that a little bit, I mean, in terms of how you see that being solved, like future, not five years from now, never mind 10 years from now, on the aggregate will be in a better scenario in terms of how hodgepodge that is today. How is that going to get better? There are a couple ways. One, look, there are companies trying to build these sort of, there are software companies trying to build software platforms for data science. And, and there are companies internally, you look like an Airbnb or an Uber, you know, and they have these platforms that they've built internally to help all of the different data scientists they have share their information, reproduce what was done, track it, manage it. So there, there are a number of these platforms which are coming about. So there are companies who are, so there are several vendors selling this and there are people trying to do this. And as you have more people in industry get used to this, you're going to have more project managers who understand how to manage these projects and they'll be able to come in and set up the infrastructure and tools. And many of these companies, there are many, several companies I know in Silicon Valley right now who are trying to solve this problem. The other is that, I mean, there are large companies like Airbnb and Uber and Google who have already solved this problem internally. And they're, you know, eventually you hire people from those companies and they show you how to do it, or those companies outsource their technology, or those companies take over your industry. Yeah, yeah, right? one or the other, right? Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a whole move in Silicon Valley now to what are called AI-first companies. The, the example is if I were making an Uber 10 years ago, and I, or if I were Uber today and I want to make an Uber, you know, I would start a startup, I'd make an iPhone app, and I'd try to sell it to Yellow Cab. That's not how they think anymore. Now the thought is, let's just take over the worldwide cab industry. They can't do this stuff. We'll just cut them out. So there's a whole thought process now about we're just going to take over entire industries because they're, they're so siloed and so structured. You know, we have the capital resources. The cities have plenty of money. We'll just take over everything. I often cite you as the guy who has the pessimism sometimes of, of some of the stodgier firms upgrading their skills and sort of getting up to speed before just somebody overhauls the whole ball game. Um, you, well, you've, I, you've I, expressed I live in San Francisco. Your, your, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You live in San Francisco and you've expressed your frustration on, on a great many of our interactions together around sort of how hard it is to get these team dynamics to actually click. Before we get on to defining a win for an AI strategy, which is something else that you'd mentioned off mic was critical, is there a way to maybe walk through what a team dynamic might be in an example project. I mean, we got a lot of people in, let's say, uh, sure, pharma sure. or finance. I don't know if you can use any of those, but just to say how to show who would need to be involved, how long, and why it's different than just plugging in some IT solution. You know, can we map through this a bit? Sure. Look, I'll give you an example from eBay from many, many years ago. Okay. So I think it's been so long. You know, ten years ago, I don't think they're going to care. Many years ago, I was brought into eBay. They were trying to build the system to automate the customer support platform at eBay. So eBay, you know, they spend tens of millions of dollars on customer support, maybe a hundred million, enormous amounts of money on customer support. I mean, they're, eBay is like a small country, the, the size at which they operate. And, you know, they get a lot of customer support emails. And so the emails come in and they need to route these emails to, you know, a customer support representative so they can answer the email, right? You can imagine at the scale in which eBay gets customer support emails that they would want to find a way to read these emails, classify them into categories, and ship, ship them off to the correct customer support representative. You'd need a uh, you know a thousand people 
just labeling them and sending them to the next guy, right? That's right. You know, I had to realize that 10 years ago, this was a hard problem. Today, I mean, you could build this yourself. Or yeah, there's a lot of companies this. in this space now. Yeah, this is a, this is a right. vendor-heavy domain. Yeah. Yeah, but 10 years ago, there was one company called Remedy. And the way the Remedy system worked is it used regular expressions. And so you would enter regular expressions. And as new emails would come in, somebody would write a regular expression. They'd put it into the, uh, the Remedy database. And the Remedy system would run the regular expressions on the email. And they would route to the correct customer support representative. And you can imagine a company like eBay. This is a global operation. There are people in India, there are people in Europe, there are people in America, there's, you know, all over the world, there are people doing this. And these emails are going all over the world to try to get routed. Well, they had a team, which I don't think existed when I was there, that wanted to, they wanted to use machine learning to do this. You know, they had done this at Cisco. I think it was Cisco that Cisco had a system that did this and they wanted to implement it at eBay. And so that was the strategy. We're going to implement it. And that's a reasonable strategy, right? If you come from a company, and you can see this is doable at Cisco. Why can't you do it at eBay? eBay's you know bigger than Cisco. Shouldn't be a problem. Okay, so you start putting in the production and you find out it just doesn't work. So you build a system, you 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 build all the people, you organize everybody, you get all these tools, and it's just not working. Like it just doesn't work at all. And nobody can figure out what's going on. So they brought in, you know, they had tried this internally. They brought in these software consultants and these guys who, oh, it's the machine learning algorithm. We need to use a nonlinear kernel and we need to do this. They outsourced it to a couple of different firms and they produced this stuff. And, and, and it just wasn't working. Finally, I came in and the guy who was running the group was a former special forces guy. And I had worked with special forces guy when I was in gymnastics. My old gymnastics coach was special forces. So I'm used to the mentality. Because I want you to find out who's lying to me, and I'm going to. And he says to me, "I want you to find out who's lying to me, and I'm going to go crack their head open." So, okay, no problem. I, and I understand. You know, that doesn't even bother me. I'm not, I mean, so I'm like, okay, no problem. So I go and I start talking to people, and I, you know, I, I I put a little bit of a rough edge on because I'm doing what he told me to do. You know, find out what's going on. And I remember talking to one of these vendors, and the vendor's explaining to me what he's doing. And I start asking him technical questions, and he just can't answer basic technical things about the algorithm. So I'm like, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Why am I talking to you? I don't want to hear a sales pitch from you. I want you to explain to me every single detail of what you're doing so I can understand why this thing isn't working. And if you can't explain, you need to have your support. You need to have your your top engineer needs to be in the room with me so they can answer these questions. And if you and so this is what happens, you know, in a big organization, you get these sales guys come in and they try to pitch you something. The engineers are not there, so you don't know what's going on. So we always you know, I started studying the problem. And what was happening is that somewhere downstream, a decision had to be made about how to label the emails. So what happens is that that labeling decision, it turns out that, you know, whoever was making that decision or how it was done did not, was not a machine learning person and did not understand that you have to, that you have to be labeled in a certain way. So they had, for example, eBay has these super users. I think they're called super users. I can't remember all the language. You know, they have so many acronyms there. And you know, all the super user emails were put into one bucket because these are the top users at eBay. And you know, we want to have a great customer experience. We want to make sure that their emails get routed and answered quickly because they're our top people. And that makes perfect sense. Yep, got to prioritize. But put it into, right, but when you put that in somewhere downstream, the power user emails got mixed in with the labeled emails about this is about digital cameras. This is about fraud. This is about how do I register my products? You know, somewhere down the line, 
the fact that you're a super a power seller or a power user got mixed in with the other category labels. You know, it made it impossible to build a simple classifier. And, and what happened is that when they were working with these external firms, they, you know, these documents and emails were passed through the organization to different groups and eventually got handed off to the contracting firm. And the contracting firm had no idea how the data was labeled. So there was no way they could ever solve the problem. They just didn't have a clue. And so for me to solve this, you know, look, I had to go and basically spend three months talking to people in the organization to understand how is this, you know, how is this entire massive system built and where in the pipeline did the power user emails get mixed up with the other labeled emails in such a way that they got their own label instead of being individually classified. You had to be the connective tissue that maybe, I guess, in a modern machine learning application within a big company, you would hope would already be there, that the people doing the labeling would be the subject matter experts and that there would be a review process and that that stuff would happen together as opposed to having a backtrack. It sounds like you had to undo not, the not rat's in, nest. Not in a big company like eBay's a huge place. I oh, mean, yeah, yeah. A- this is not a startup. I mean, it, it's well, so, you'd, you'd, you'd hope. You'd hope, so, I guess, if they did it again today, they'd, they'd have these these teams connected off the bat. No. I mean, no, because really? it's a new project. And if you go to a company today and you try to develop your AI strategy, it's probably a greenfield strategy for you. And, and remember, this is not necessarily incompetence on their part. I mean, it's just that, you know, it's a very, very complicated system. Yep. And somewhere down the line, things got mixed up. Look, it's also uh, the people managing the projects are not specialists. So at some point, for example, you know, they, they just didn't understand someone, one of the managers somewhere in some other country did not understand that the system would not be able to determine power user emails from other emails. Like they just weren't classifiable. They, they just didn't understand that because like, they're not AI, they're not AI guys. They're just managers who are trying to, well, why can't it figure it out? I, I'm a human. I can read it and I can figure it out. Why can't the AI figure it out? I mean, a human would be able to tell immediately, this is from a super user. This is not from a super user. Yeah. Or power, this is from a power seller. This is not, I mean, a human would tell that. It's not a hard problem. Why can't the AI do it? You know, it's just, it's a miscommunication issue. It, it, and it's a very subtle issue because it's something that you would have to be a specialist in the field to really understand where the mistake happened. Yep. And it's not so, and it's perfect. And what the what the manager did was probably perfectly reasonable given their level of understanding and what the problem was, and you know, and how their systems work. You know, we have to understand they have special support representatives who only handle power users. So it's a disconnect between the requirements gathering and the exter- and, and understanding what the external firm was asking for, which they were just trying to build some off the shelf classifier. And the external firm they're working for, you know, they didn't have contact with that downstream person who I think was probably in Europe somewhere who made a decision for something happening in India about what the requirement – it's a requirements gathering. And by the way, I was only working in the requirements gathering phase. That was my job was to gather requirements. So that was what I was supposed to do is like figure out what are the requ- – I mean I wasn't even building the thing for them. I was just gathering the requirements in fact, technically, I wasn't even gathering the requirements. I was building the scope document to gather the requirements. So, that's how big eBay is. So I was doing my job, which was to gather the scope to figure out how to collect the requirements. So it's a requirements gathering issue. And it's so complicated in a big system. And so if you go to a big company now and you ask, oh, we have an AI strategy and we want to do this. Yeah, it's very, very – the people gathering the requirements – 
are not necessarily specialists because they've never gathered requirements for AI systems. The contractors working on the problem, they're just, they're not real contractors. I mean, these are guys who aren't really building the system. I mean, they're not, they're just doing some, you, you hired them to do some small compartmentalized piece somewhere down the path. You know, there was a, you know, a wire got crossed. And I guess if, uh, and obviously, you know, eBay was doing this stuff before other people were really, Decades. yeah, yeah. And, and it's, and it's tough and, to, and we did fix the problem. That was my job was to fix this problem. I mean, you know, cause we, you know, that's not everything happens smoothly. Not every problem you build is going to go from A to Z smoothly. You're going to have little tweaks and you've got to go in and figure out what's going on. And, and if they could do it over again, let's say today or go back in time, you know, you had mentioned a couple places where kind of the handoff could have been made and maybe they couldn't have even known it's such a darn big organization. But if it could have gone a bit smoother in terms of take home lessons for listeners here, what would that have been? Don't try to offshore a complex, uh, a complex. The, the, the problem was that they thought that the problem was in the algorithm, that somehow the algorithm was the issue and you just had to outsource to some AI firm. And you could just hand them your data and they would fix it. They would do it for you. That's the problem. The idea that you can compartmentalize this data handoff without having deep expertise at the requirements gathering when you're doing the scoping and requirements gathering. That's what they discovered they could not do. And they had to bring in a specialist to work in project management to gather the requirements. The other is that, and this is another issue that we were working working with in solving, eBay has an R&D team. And I knew when I came in that we are going to have to vet this project through eBay R&D. I knew that immediately. Even the director, even the, man, the guy I was working with, hadn't thought that he was going to have to do that. And I asked him about it, and he found out he was supposed to. And so I actually did my own research on what algorithms worked and which ones didn't. I did that as part of the requirements gathering process. I was actually doing algorithm research. And that's very different than the traditional requirements gathering process. And the reason for that is because the requirements gathering process in an AI or an algorithm system requires that you do some legwork to evaluate the performance of the algorithms on your data. Yeah, this is kind of like defining the win, Charles. Are we starting to get into that part of the chat here? Or or just it's part of defining the win, but I think it's also part of understanding that you talk about how teams and how requirements are gathered. You typically, in a software construction project, you don't have to do detailed level performance testing at the requirements gathering phase. You know, I'm going to design a database. This is what the database has to do. Then you go and you buy the database and you scale it out. If it's a problem, you scale it out horizontally or you scale it out vertically. In other words, existing systems in the IT world in order to meet your performance requirements, can be scaled either vertically or horizontally. AI systems don't work like that. You can't take an AI system that operates at 80% and say, well, I need this thing to operate at 90%, so we're just going to buy more machines. That doesn't work. Yep. That's one of the fundamental problems. And it, that's why it's fundamentally different than IT, because IT doesn't have that problem unless you're at extreme scale. Yeah, and and you brought this up, I think, maybe the first time we had you on the show of of the fact that execs want to say, well, I need it to be 100% accurate. People don't realize that machine learning doesn't really work like that. There's always going to be margins of error, and it sounds like hopefully we're a little bit closer to people understanding that now, but it's still made by the expectation. If you have a website and you need to serve 5 million daily active users, and you can only serve a million daily active users right now, you could just put a load balancer and just buy and buy four more machines. And now you can serve 5 million daily active users. You just put a million on each machine. You shard them out. 
It doesn't work in AI. You can't do that. You can't say, oh, I, I need 90% accuracy. I'll just buy five more machines. It, it doesn't work. So it's even more fundamental. Like, you know, you might even beyond knowing that it needs to be 100% accurate, it's also realizing that you can't scale it in this way. You can't improve performance by just simply buying more machines or hiring more people. And that's the fundamental challenge is that it's different in that sense. What's happened, you know, 20 years ago, if you needed to get to 5 million daily active users, you had to hire an engineer and they had to redesign your system. But today there exist things like load balancers and AWS and, you know, distributed databases and systems that all solve that problem for you. So that's what I mean by the IT environment has become so sophisticated and commoditized that many of these problems for the average business have gone away. They're just completely commoditized and they're solved by existing engineering solutions. Today, what do you want to do? You want to have like auto ML. You want to have automated machine learning systems that can take a problem and automatically say, oh, here's the data. I'm operating at 80%. I want to design an AI algorithm that'll operate at 90% on the same data. And you want to have some sort of automated optimizing compiler that will design a neural network that improves your performance by 10%. Maybe five years from now that will exist. But it, it doesn't exist today. That's the issue, that the technology just isn't here yet. And maybe next year, someone will release an optimizing compiler that can design an AI on TensorFlow. And if you give me something with 80%, you know, I can run it for a month and it'll give me an AI that runs at 90% without overtraining. Not at that crossroads as of today. AutoML, not directly around the corner, although there are vendors that might encourage you to believe otherwise. I think uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to see how that shakes out. The last point that we had jotted down, Charles, is on the topic of figuring out what you want to get out of your AI strategy. When you're working with bigger firms, getting a sense of, okay, we're going to leverage AI. This is going to be part of what we do as a business, part of how we win in the market. What the heck is the win? You've explained, I, I think, in, in other venues, sort of why that's challenging, kind of why defining the win of AI is challenging. Maybe you can go through what that process would look like, maybe why it's hard, put some context around why this is a critical part of strategy. Look, in any, in any organization, it's very rare that the CEO is going to come in and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And we're, this, is the, this is exactly what we're going to do and we're going to solve this problem this way. Usually, you know, you have a whole range of problems you're trying to solve. And there's some executive in the organization who wants to get a win and wants to push forward a particular project. They, they want to use AI on their project and the people on their team, for them to be on the team, their bonus is going to be based on how well this new project does. So you've got some issues involved or you know, you, you're going to have an issue where how much time do you have to get your deliverable? You know, do you need to have results in three months or do you have 18 months? How much runway do you have? This is a, a big problem. You know, your organizations today are based, especially public organizations, are based on three-month windows on earnings. And, and so a lot of people think you have three months to get returns. And if you don't, if this project doesn't show some measurable result in three months, we're going to kill it. So that's the problem. So you have to understand how much runway do you really have? And, and there's always a problem if you have too much runway that you spend all your time setting up infrastructure and not getting a win. Yep. And so you have to understand what kind of organization are you in? Then, you know, and sometimes you have longer runways and sometimes you don't. But usually you're trying to get some prototype built. I want to build a prototype that does something. And whenever you're dealing with data, you never really know whether the prototype is doable because you don't really know what's in the data and you don't really know what's going to happen when you run an algorithm on it. There's just no way to know. I, I guess people who work in marketing or release, you know, if you release a movie or you release a new app, 
you know, you're sort of relying on the fact that there are customers and you expect those customers to behave in a certain way. And, and you try to offset that risk by doing something like a user study or a survey. And it's the same thing in AI. You know, if you're trying to build a complex project, you want to try to mitigate your risks. And one of the things you do is you try to do a, a prototype or what I call a back of the envelope calculation. An idea from physics is that how quickly can you decide whether this product is going to be successful or not? Yeah, no, and what, what, are, what are rules of thumb there, right? I mean, you got to you got to assess the data you need. You got to assess the the talent you have. You got to assess maybe the priority in the business. I mean, that's a lot of things for an envelope. What are you What are you going about this? Well, uh, one of the ones that people miss is how are you going to test it? So we have cases where you build something in the lab. You know, it works really well. You put it into production, it breaks down. And you ask, well, did, is it because the data was incorrect? Is it because you you didn't actually do a randomized experiment? And you thought you were doing a randomized experiment, you didn't. Or you don't know how to do attribution. So you, you have this problem, like, I'm going to build this thing. How do I know that if I put it into production, how am I going to know that I can actually test it properly? And, and so you have to have just a, a good real feeling for how your systems work. If you have 10 touch points between you developing the algorithm and it getting in front of somebody to test, if there are 10 steps in between, 10 people in between or 10 groups in between, that's a lot of risk. That's a lot of touch points, which something can go wrong. Somebody can make a decision that you don't know about and you don't have any control over. And that decision could completely break what you're doing. And so, you know, you're trying to avoid externalities, the, the way an economist would say. You're, you're trying to avoid unseen problems, somebody doing something or something happening that you don't have any control over, that you have no way of knowing what happened or how you could fix it. Because, you know, if you put the thing in, you get it in, you know, because if it doesn't work, you want to be able to correct it quickly. And and that's the challenge. Look, many years ago, I worked at a, a startup, Aardvark. And, you know, we were building this thing. And I just, I built this classifier for questions and I put it in production. Let's put it in production. And so the people, and it was sort of the opposite mentality. It was like, look, we're a startup. We've only got so much runway. We've got to build this thing and get it into production. If it doesn't work, we're going to go out of business. If we spend time testing it, we're going to run out of money. So, you know, you, you just have to do it. You know, you've got, it's like on Star Trek when, when Scotty says, look, I need to run the experiment. And Kirk says, look, you either put the dilithium crystals in and if they work, they work. And, with the, and if they don't work, we're going to die anyway. That's a judgment call you have to make. How much risk can you bear? And for public companies, I mean, you know, you're talking about a three month turnaround for projects where, you know, we probably can't even in many cases get the, the, the data ready in three months. You can't get the contract signed in three months. Yeah, geez, yeah exactly. Right. With that being said, I mean, is is that, that that sounds like a natural barrier to making AI come to life? Is if we don't have experimentation budget to win, if we don't have the time budget to do the full blown implementation and build and test and iterate until we finally have a win, even if it's in an area that's really important, well, what are we going to do in a public company? You know, are, are there firms that are maybe getting around that somehow and making a good case for their investors? Like, hey, look, this is an investment you know, chill out, the world of investing, kind of getting more sympathetic with the idea that AI is taking longer. I mean, how are we going to get past that three-month window public firm issue? We have a joke. I worked at a private equity firm. We have a joke. If you buy IBM Watson, we should short you. Most people try to do this as a buy decision. Big companies don't see innovation as building. They see innovation as testing a prototype, running a pilot. I'm going to run a pilot. I'm going to bring well, a startup. That's, that's how it. That's how it works, right? I mean, you know, a ton of these startups. That's their whole life is like zero to what, however many million is. Can I get pilots? Because that's how the enterprises think. 
Well, the challenge is that you have to decide, you know, if you have something which is really important to the internals of your company, like it's, it's your crown jewels, and you're trying to develop some sort of AI to improve your crown jewels, you're going to have to take a much longer step. You're going to have to bring in senior people. You're going to have to work with people long term. If you can pick something that's, you know, just kind of a, a one off. Yeah, you can bring a vendor in and you can let the vendor do it. And you basically let the vendor take the risk. And if it doesn't work, well, it was a one off. And that's it. I mean, they, uh, you, you, you know that you have companies that simply are not going to be doing internal research. Yep. And they're not going to be researching new products. So look, when you're, when you're running an organization, in any innovation, you have to make a decision about, are you going to try to build, innovate on your core technology? Or are you going to try to find new sales channels? You know, and that, that's a challenge, you know, because that, that's where revenue goes. Or even even in, a, in an engineering firm, you know, when you're working in a search engine, you have to, you know, I work in a search engine eBay, you have to make a decision. Am I going to try to get more customers to use the search engine? Or am I going to try to make the quality of the search engine better? That's an engineering trade-off, right? One is about AI, the making the quality better is about putting machine learning into the search engine to make the results better, and that will improve revenue. The other is I want to get more people, you know, using the search engine. So it becomes spammier, but you have more people using it, so they have more clicks, and that also increases revenue. I, I, I think that from a strategic perspective, those are your trade-offs. And you have to decide, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a tools company, or do you want to build things? If, you know, look at Bezos and, and Amazon. I mean, he decided very early on that he wanted to be an engineering company. They wanted to build things. That's a public company, right? Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, they built things. Other companies are tools companies. Look, we don't build things. We use tools. And that's fine. If you use tools and you have to go and find those tools and try to use them, a lot of companies are going to find a tool and maybe there's some tool, maybe there's something on Amazon, there's some AI on Amazon you can use, or maybe Microsoft Azure, or maybe some new stored procedure in SQL Server, and you use that internally. And a lot of it is just about you know figuring out how to use these new features in these products. And that's fine if that's what you want to do. I mean, that could be very effective for you. You know, e even if you're going to be using new tools, you still have to learn what they are and what they're capable of doing. An example we have with a client, we, we were showing someone how to use Amazon recognition to do object detection. And then they got this idea that they were going to do it on their LiDAR data. Like, it doesn't work on LiDAR data. It only works on image data. That's a technical detail, which you have to understand when you're crafting strategy. And if you don't understand that, how do you craft a strategy if you don't understand what the thing actually does at a basic level. That's the challenge. Yeah, the, and let's get into an example of, you know, you'd mentioned how to test it as you were kind of going into this concept, and that that is maybe harder than people presume. Have you had examples of projects where maybe we know what the ultimate win is, but knowing if we're getting closer is really tough? Because I can see folks constructing a strategy, thinking about that near-term win, thinking about where the impact's going to be seen, but to sort of see those proxies on the way there maybe it's harder than people think. Um, let me know if maybe there's a way we can put some color on that idea you'd mentioned here. The basic problem is finance. When I worked at BlackRock, what is the goal of BlackRock? I worked in the SAE group. We want to predict the stock market. Okay. So you produce algorithms and you think that you're predicting the stock market. It's not an automated system. Those algorithms then go to a trader and it tells the trader a signal, buy this, sell that. Well, the trader may or may not execute because they get lots of signals and they're trying to manage their portfolio. And they're influenced and guided by the algorithms, but it's not a fully automated system. So now you come back at the end of the year and you ask, okay, the, you got so much return on the portfolio. How much, and you know, the traders were actively trading this thing. How much of that can you attribute to the algorithm? That's not entirely clear. I mean, because all the decisions were made by a human. 
but they were informed by the algorithm and the algorithm is it worth 60% or is yeah. it worth I, and maybe there's placebo there too right i mean if people think that they have a super cool algorithm maybe do they just in some way look at their signals maybe more often and maybe just in general that's what's getting the results is is this all kind of part of the challenge of coaxing right, out right. what's making a difference right so it, and, and that's i mean if people think that the, the the market's completely automated but not not i mean that's only a very small portion is automated there's still humans making decisions and you know you're making an investment decisions so anytime there's a human in the loop anywhere any anytime there's a human in the loop you're not really sure what's happening now there there are other cases as well for example you may have an algorithm and you're giving it to humans to make decisions and some humans are better than other and there's a bias and so the ones that aren't very good at what they do use the algorithm and, and then they kind of screw it up. So it looks like the algorithm isn't really working, but it's really the people you gave it to who don't know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, okay. Okay. These are very classic problems in any form of attribution that there are causal factors that you can't see. The classic example of this is if you run an ad and let's say you're running ads on a publisher and all you're doing is measuring clicks. You're not measuring conversions. All you do is measure clicks. You have views and you have clicks. Because clicks are a pro and you're saying maybe you're selling a product which says how many clicks do you get? How many views and how many clicks versus conversions? Well, you know, it's fairly easy to get people to click on things who don't buy. You can fudge the system. Like for example, one of the tricks is you put a link to a picture which isn't there. And so people will go and click on the ad just to see the picture because they're curious what the picture is. Yeah. Like you know, it's a picture of a boat, but you don't see it. Or you want to get views. I mean, you know, you put a picture of uh, who's a popular one. I was a kid. Britney Spears was the pop star. Whoever the pop star is now, you know, yeah. you put a picture of a pretty girl in an ad, and that doesn't work. You know, if you're selling women's shoes and the guys click on the ad just to see the girl, they're not going to buy the shoes. So you have biases that you you do things that look like, oh, we we changed our algorithm and increased the number of clicks, and the number of views, but conversions are going down. Why is that? You may say, oh, that's kind of obvious. Oh yeah, but you know, if you're working in a complex system and you have an AI running and there are multiple steps that are going to lead to a purchase or increasing revenue, you may not be able to measure the direct impact on revenue. All you can measure is a proxy for revenue. And that proxy may not be correct. It may it may have all sorts of causal factors which actually give you the wrong result. You could actually be doing things backwards and then this so this is a real problem and complex systems like this when they become algorithmic have these problems. And it sounds to me like maybe part of the lesson here is determining how you measure getting closer or farther from the goal, measuring your win is maybe going to be harder than you presume, A, and maybe B, just as you're going to have to iterate to make sure the algorithm is doing what it needs to do and that the data is coming in in the right way and it's the most relevant data and it's it's you know harmonized and, and formatted in the right ways you're also potentially going to have to iterate on how you're trying to measure this thing because you might not even realize the fact that your inept traders are more apt to try to use this AI tool than your really, really good traders and that that might be throwing your stuff off. And so you got to design a better study even. And, and now you're getting into something that's way harder than, I don't know, a spam filter. Do I have more or less spam, right? It's, it's sort of like maybe an As easier yes or no. As companies become more AI-driven, they will become more quantitative and more automated. And as that happens, you're going to need more internal staff who have a deeper understanding of how to do mathematical and economic modeling to understand what's happening. The perfect example of this is Uber. 
you know, they have, I think they even have Nobel prizes, you know, you know in, in economics, they hire teams of economists whose job it is to study the Uber system and figure out how to improve performance. And economic modeling is not machine learning. It's a completely different field. They use different techniques and they, they are particularly uh, concerned with trying to tease out causal factors, which you can't observe. So, and it's the same in Wall Street, right? As, as you become more quantitative, you may think, oh, I'm going to automate my business and I'm going to get rid of all these employees who, you know, I, I can replace them with machines. Instead of having 100 employees, I only need 10. Or instead of 1,000 employees, I need 100. Well, that may be true, but you also might need 10 PhD economists just to figure out what's going on. And that's a different, and those people are going to be more ambitious and they're going to demand more from you than the 500 employees that you fired. You know, as you bring in people who are more skilled, have higher educations, have more technical challenges, they're also going to be more ambitious and they're going to be more challenging for you. I mean, it's the same reason why, you know, that, that that's a challenge in organizations. I mean, look, organizations are made with people. And as you bring in more people who are more competent and more sophisticated and more ambitious, they're going to have more conflict. Well, you heard it here, folks. You're not only going to need uh, new uh, new kinds of talent to get the job done, but new kinds of talent to even set and measure the darn goals. So uh, no um, no easy out, but it sounds like these are, in, in your mind, Charles, sort of inevitable maybe changes to the skill balance within larger organizations. So absolutely, yes. Yeah, it's a good way to put the skill yeah. balance. Look, you're going to need more people with a larger variety of complex skills. I, I have a, an old friend from high school and college who works at Think Tank in Washington. And he says, you know, in Washington, there's always a Spock in the boardroom. Every complex organization, which is doing, you know, like advanced military work, has a chief scientist who is in the boardroom. There's no way you could run any of these, you know, very, very complex military technical organizations without this because they understand what's going on. And these people, they're not MBAs. They come from other backgrounds. I mean, maybe they have an MBA, but they're, they're not typical sales, marketing, IT. They're coming from other backgrounds. And you're going to need them. Because they have to be able to make these kind of decisions. And that's going to permeate throughout the organization, that you're going to need more of these kinds of people. And I gave a talk at the Haas Business School, and I have this – I never thought I'd talk in a business school. But I, I have this image. You ever watch Big Bang Theory? I've heard of it, never seen it. Ah, I'm sure your listeners have heard it. There's three types. I say there are three types of techies. You know, there's, there's Howard, there's Leonard, and there's Sheldon. One is an engineer, one is an applied physicist, and one is a theorist. And they have completely different personalities. And they all work together. And, that, and that's the thing is that not all techies are the same. And when you bring guys in from economics or from physics or from AI, they're going to have different backgrounds, different personalities, different expectations, different ways of working than people in IT. And you know, they're going to think, think, and they're going to want to you know, have some input. And so it's, it's challenging because you have to build that entire base. You just can't, you can't outsource it. You may not be able to buy it. You can't expect to hire junior people and have them managing complex systems. Yep. So it, it, it takes a lot of change. It, inevitable talent balance and uh, a whole bunch of other challenge with, uh, challenges. I, I like of, that. You, you're going to use talent that term? All right. Good. Well, I, I've, stolen, I've stolen enough of your stuff, Charles. You can steal one of mine. I, I, the other thing that makes it very hard is that a lot of these guys who are good at AI, and I was like this when I was younger, you know, they have PhDs. When you have a PhD, you work by yourself. For several years, right? You you maybe interact with your advisor, a couple other students. That's it. You're not used to working in complex teams. Yeah, I've had many places where I've worked where they brought in these PhDs, and these guys just you know they're they're as Sheldon as it gets. If you ever watch show, they're just difficult to work with, and they call. And it's just because the culture is so different. 
And it's because we haven't yet, in terms of business and organization, society, we haven't yet intermingled all of these people. You know, over time, the ones who are very smart figure out, hey, I got to learn how to get along with people. And they figure it out. But I mean, that takes time. And it's not as if large numbers of companies are going into academics and partnering with PhDs in order to do innovation. That happens at Stanford. Maybe it happens at Berkeley and MIT. And that's about it. Maybe it needs to happen more. Maybe some of the adjustment is going to have to happen as people come up in school in addition to when they actually land in a business. They're going to have to understand, look, you, you can't hang in a corner with your algorithms. You know, you're going to be in the real world. I think having, you know, just inter- if you're a PhD, collaborating with industry and having internships would have a huge impact. And even that, like a lot of it is like they think, oh, I'm going to do a postdoc in industry. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really working in industry and, and working with people to solve problems. And it, it's one of the great, I think one of the things that's missing in our in- education is that interconnection, that, that interplay between industry and academics, that as AI gets more and more sophisticated, you know, you're going to need to have that talent pool. And that's going to require a different type of education and a different type of interaction between the industry and academics in order to really develop this. And it's not going to happen in the business schools. Yeah. There's so many different parts of the osmosis that have to sort of come together or aspects of osmosis that have to come together to to sort of solve that bigger cultural problem. And I think in closing on this lengthy session on AI strategy, hopefully the listeners what Charles is bringing up here is is not so much kind and tender advice about how how lovely the the AI journey is going to be within a larger business, but a realistic view of what is hard, why it's hard, and what you're up against if this is something you want to do, but at least there are answers. So Charles, really appreciate you doing the deep dive into kind of the major aspects of AI strategy as you see it, and I appreciate you joining us here on AI and Industry. So thanks so much. Hey, thank you, Daniel. I, you have a great podcast, and I hope it was helpful, and I love being on here. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.